0: Welcome to the Makers, Dreamers, Doers podcast with me, Morgan Barrett. In episode 13, I welcome Panta Flores of Masiwal Quali Farms in North Lawrence, Kansas. Masiwal Kuali Farms means the people's farms. Masiwal Kuali Farms is a no-till, no-fossil-fuel farm that sustainably grows seasonal produce for restaurants, farmers' markets, and for food security work in Lawrence. In addition to operating the farm, Panta is an ec- educator who speaks on topics such as food sovereignty, food justice, sustainable agriculture, and indigenous Mexica plant ecologies. In our conversation, we talk about why representation in farming matters, what sustainable agriculture can be, what Panta's project, Food as a Public Work, is all about, and what it aims to achieve. And Panta offers a history lesson on why the landscape of agriculture, pun intended, looks the way it does today in the United States, and how indigenous modes of farming have been proven by Western science, to be more sustainable, more bountiful, and just plain smarter. Here we go. So today on the podcast, I'm talking with Panta Flores, the sole operator of Matewacuale Farms, a one-acre farm located in North Lawrence, Kansas. When I started the podcast, I knew that Panta was somebody I wanted to talk to because he does all kinds of things, stays very happily busy <laughs> um, in and around Lawrence between the farm and other other efforts that he heads up. So, Panta, I'd love to give you a moment to introduce yourself further.
1: Yeah, my name is Panta Flores. Uh, I use he, him pronouns, and I am a farmer and I would also say educator. I also work for Lawrence Public Schools as the experiential learning specialist for the district. Uh, which is fancy for I coordinate two programs: the work-based learning cool. program and the farm-to-school program. Um, yeah, so I uh, operate uh, just on, on just slightly under an acre. It's mainly a fruit and vegetable farm um, where I also do seed research.
0: So, what is your what is your background?
1: Yeah, so my great grandfather was born in Guanajuato, Mexico, and my so my mom's side of the family we actually have a. Uh, a really long ancestry document for my great aunt who goes back to like Virginia colony. So they were, I guess, English. Whoa. Yeah, many like 11 or so generations ago. That's so that cool. side of the family has been in Kansas, I think, like six generations, too. Wow. We can kind of trace them along through uh, through the American South into Kansas. So I am, I guess, English and uh, and Mexican. <laughs>
0: cool. How did you get into farming? Was it through your family connection or did you come about it another way?
1: I came into farming in a very roundabout way. I was an educator uh, teaching ESL in South Korea, Germany, Austria for a few years. Came back, did my master's degree, um, and then ended up moving to California. So I moved to California uh, during a time when there weren't a lot of jobs around here, to be honest. That was kind of my way to try and find a a path into a a career.
0: What year was that?
1: That was, oh, that was twenty. 15. Okay. Yes, in 2015, moved to California, uh, had a couple gigs uh, in private ESL industry and hardscaping. So moving like thousands of pounds of rock up San Francisco and Berkeley Hills. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I mean, you got to pay the bills, pick up a shovel. (laughs) Um, And so I did that. I was also volunteering at a community food security project called Spiral Gardens. And after a few months there uh, volunteering, that was kind of my way to tear away from that full-time job search Uh, They approached me and said, would you like to be one of our co-directors? I didn't realize how many hours (laughs) I put in over there. And they were just around the corner from where I lived. So I was in that neighborhood and said yes, like immediately. And so my entry to ag was through an educational nonprofit called Spiral Gardens, um, where we had a quarter acre nursery. So we grew vegetable and fruit starts um, and also a quarter acre urban farm in South Berkeley. So we had ducks, chickens, and community farm plots where people could come learn, take classes, grow food, be in community, that kind of thing. That's and funny. I really owe a lot to Conchon and Daniel. Um, they're they've been doing agriculture for a solid twenty twenty five years. And so I basically got to apprentice under them for three years. Nice. So I did that for about three years. Uh, California is expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was far from family. I'd spend a lot of time in other countries. You know, I had a niece. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to be closer to home. And so moved back here to Lawrence specifically because of the incubator farm program. So I actually don't own my farm. I lease it from the city slash county at a really affordable rate. It's an amazing program we have, uh, and that's really the only way I was able to start my own farm. So uh, that's that's how I started into my own farm business. But the the Spiral Gardens was really my, my big start into agriculture.
0: So uh, I live outside of Lawrence on a few acres, and we're surrounded by monoculture farms. I have a family background of farming. Yet I know pretty little about farming. Um, The extent of my knowledge around, like, well, crop production, production, food production is my own little garden, and uh, that's not saying a whole lot. So, you know, even somebody who's who literally lives among farms and spends time with my hands in the dirt, there's so much I don't know about our food systems and um, agriculture in general. So I'm wondering if you can. Tell me a little bit about the history of agriculture in this country and the role that uh, BIPOC people, which is Black, Indigenous, and people of color, play in the landscape of agriculture in the United States.
1: Yeah, definitely. So there's an extremely long history that is quite brutal, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the history of agriculture in the United States started just like the United States did. It was born in indigenous people's genocide and slavery. Um, and those connections, uh, are, there's still remnants of of evolved for, for versions of those connections today. Um, and so, you know, we have this long-term legacy of that—that that land theft, uh, of of slavery, of parsing uh, the people who lived from the land in harmony with the land, in order for this whole empire to to essentially take over the entire landscape. And so, there's been uh, a really long-standing disconnection uh, for BIPOC. Uh, with land and with agriculture and ultimately their cultures too. I mean, food is one of the most central pieces of any culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we could get into all kinds of examples. The biggest one that sticks in my mind is the also genocide of the bison too, because that Mm -hmm. was, that was a major like food and fiber and everything uh, thing for a lot of indigenous people. And, and we're still kind of recovering those populations today. And so, you know, you have that the way that it started uh, through indigenous genocide, through slavery, and then it evolves. Right. So slavery is abolished. But there's still ways that, um, you know, specifically black people aren't allowed to own land or mm-hmm. aren't allowed to interact with land. Um, Could
0: you give an example of one of those?
1: Yeah. So just uh, racial discrimination with the ability to even purchase land. Right. And we're the the largest uh civil rights lawsuit in the history of the United States is black farmers versus the USDA, right? That's, that's a two, $2 billion uh, lawsuit that still hasn't paid everyone out who deserves mm. to be paid out. Um, and so you have all these barriers, uh, including just the initial access one. So not mm-hmm. even allowed to purchase or discriminated against in loans, uh, to the point where you can't, you don't have the cash to, 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 to do it, you know, and so you don't yeah. have the loan to do it. You can't do it. Um, yeah. And that's that's still a thing. There's still uh BIPOC losing their land to banks because of bad loans or because of the inability to access loans via discrimination. Um, and 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 those are really big barriers like still today, it's something around two percent or one point eight percent of farmland is owned by by BIPOC. Um, whereas the farm worker population is yeah. almost you know, I don't know the exact number on it, but the, if we think of farm workers, Bipug. especially, yeah, especially migrant farm workers, yeah. they're the ones truly feeding the entire country and and, and bigger parts of the world. Right. The financial uh, discrimination and, and the social discrimination components are all still very much alive and well. I mean, we are where we are today because of a legacy of Discrimination and worse, um, including genocide and slavery. And we are still where we are today because the systems that are in place are d- designed to still create those kind of severances um, along specifically racial lines. Uh, it goes way more than that. But I would say racial discrimination is where uh, why we are where we are today.
0: So why is it important for BIPOC to be in agricultural spaces? Like, why is this an issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody deserves to have access to every field, right? Women deserve to have access to be in STEM, Right. They deserve to be scientists and and do everything that historically have been deemed things that only men are supposed to do, quote unquote. Right? White men. Right. There we go. <laughs> and even more specifically, if we want to drill that down. And so it's I mean, it's a matter of inclusion and it's hard to get into agriculture because you need such a resource that or a resource that is uh, has a very high entry point. Right. I mean, most farmers. We'll take out that million dollar loan just to get the land alone, take another million to get the tractor, take another and just be continuously in debt. And um, and not a lot of people can do that even in the first place. And so everybody should be able to, according to what the United States says, it's founded upon, be able to pursue their form of happiness. Right. I in my heart, want to be in agriculture. I want to be a farmer. I want to be connected to the land. I want to feed people. I want to do all these things professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, that is my pursuit of happiness, right? Um, and allegedly, we're supposed to all be able to have that. And so, you know, there's there's that core component of what democracy is supposed to stand for, right? Uh, but then if we go beyond that, there's, again, those cultural components of everyone should also be able to access their own culture and a lot of times with the systems as they're set up uh it's it's not possible for a lot of BIPOC to do that right we we have to go to culturally specific grocery stores Mm -hmm. to get a lot of the things that we really want they're Mm -hmm. not in major chain uh style grocery stores us being in agriculture also gives us the ability to not only have our own food culture but ultimately to be able to share it with people who aren't within our culture too because if I can't produce it I can't have it for myself and my family. I can't share it with yours, right? Mm-hmm. Um to
0: be at the table of people who are deciding what America eats, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and and what's been decided is uh is not great, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you look at the back of almost any label and you find corn syrup listed there yeah. and uh and you don't find a whole lot of a whole lot of the things that I grow. You know, in in your basic, you know, chain grocery
0: stores yeah we've gotten away from it even really being food that we're eating yeah in a lot of instances i mean when it comes to processed food
1: yeah i mean when it comes to grocery stores in the industry uh produce is is what's called a loss leader meaning that they have it there just to bring people in they lose money on it more or less so that you can buy everything in the aisles in between wow
0: and that's a whole other topic to get into. Yeah. I don't even want to touch that right now The yeah. 10-foot pole. That no. sounds like very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, i its it feels silly to me to ask that question. Like, why does it matter to have people of color in agriculture? Because to me, it's really obvious. But unfortunately, I feel like we're at a point in our history, mm-hmm. in, you know, present day, where those things aren't. Always obvious to people, you know, where people are at. People are, um, let's see, how do you say this? I don't know. There's so much, there's so much like bigotry and, um, entitlement and fear and fear mongering going on in our country right now that it's like we have to ask those questions that shouldn't have to be asked, you know, but, but it's like we have to talk about them because they're, they're being, You know, when I think of like inclusion being attacked by people like Candace Owens, you know, or that kind of crowd, it's like, oh my God, I'm so sick of talking about inclusion. It's like, well, inclusion matters. And we have to talk about why inclusion matters. I feel like we have to go back to basics and talk about why things like this are really important.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have to understand the history of anything to understand where it currently is, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. If you don't know that, If you don't know that history and you don't understand why the systems were made by design as they are, you also don't know how to dismantle those systems. And if you don't dismantle them, they're always going to be either overt or covertly there. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like we were talking about and before we started the our food systems and like the way that we get our food beyond going to the grocery store and purchasing it is is kind of a mystery to a lot of people. <clears throat> we don't we're not super educated on food systems. Let's talk about um, your project Food as a public work and and what that's all about.
1: Food as a public work is a project that would hire 12 to 16 food systems workers to, produce food that would go out to people for free. So it could go through food banks, it could go through programs like food is medicine, it could go through grassroots organizations. And when you have, you know, 12 to 16 people, and you pay them a living wage, uh, you're operating a, a project on about $1.2 million a year. Uh, from that Based on talking to other farmers who have been so kind as to open their books and show me what their production looks like, you're realizing about five to six million dollars in direct services. And one of the issues that we have today in hunger alleviation is that we're trying to buy our way out of it, we're trying to consume our way out of hunger. And so, if you think of, for example, a program like SNAP, so SNAP's been around for a really long time, formerly known as food stamps. And SNAP, in the last 30 years, hasn't really budged our food insecure population at all. in the last thirty years, it's maintained itself between about eleven and fourteen percent food insecure population across the country. To me, that's longitudinal evidence that that's not really working. like it's helping a lot of people. It's helped me in my in my life uh, as well. Uh, but it's not solving anything. It's kind of sustaining a level of need in in a way hmm. um And so what happens so when I say consumptive model, the tax base pays in right to the system. The system via the farm bill uh, pays uh, SNAP recipients and, and program administrators to administrate uh, all of the funding as well. And then they go to the grocery store and buy uh, buy that food, right? So we're consuming. It's a consumptive model. It's ultimately a a way for us to try to buy our way out of hunger. Whereas, if when we're, you say that when you say yeah. buy our
0: way out of hunger, you mean we as the consumers like like by giving us say i'm a recipient of snap or i'm a i'm someone who's using snap when you say buy my way out you mean i'm given the money to go buy my food at the grocery store and that and the idea is that that gets me out of hunger because now i have the resources to go buy my food
1: i would i would say the united states is trying to buy its way out of the problem i wouldn't put any kind of blame on on people who like myself have been on snap um so the united states as its model is set up is trying to throw money uh out there trying to buy its way out of having a a hungry population
0: right Mm. and so we're trying
1: to consume our way out of this issue of hunger um, because we're collecting what's already public money Mm -hmm. um we're giving it out to people which is good and necessary Mm -hmm. and then they're ultimately handing that off to massive industrial farming industry Um, which at the end of the day ends up being those middle aisles of overly processed, highly processed food. Um, Because again, as someone who's been on, uh, on SNAP, who was also working uh, full-time going to graduate school full-time I didn't always have time to cook fresh stuff. So I had to rely a lot on those middle aisles of less fresh, less healthy foods um, just because of time constraints. Mm -hmm. Right. And so going back to that bigger picture, it's it's a consumptive model, whereas food as a public work is a is a productive model. So we're actually trying to produce food uh, and we're subsidizing instead of subsidizing the consumption of food. We're subsidizing the actual production of food, um, which, as I as I mentioned, is, um, you know, a million 1.2 million in for five to six million in direct food services out.
0: Can you explain that idea of subsidization as though I'm a third grader?
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, you have a job, okay. right? And you have to pay this thing called taxes, which mm-hmm. is where the government is supposed to take some money from the money that you made from your job and then return it to us in in the form of services. So mm-hmm. they, they give it back to us, for example, in this one, uh, to people who need to buy food, who don't have enough food. And so the government gives you some of your money, some of the all of everybody's money back from the taxes uh, and then you can then go to the grocery store and buy food because you need food. And so that is that is a way that we're buying our way out of people being hungry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If instead we still, you know, we have our jobs, we pay our taxes, the government returns it to people who actually grow food, we can grow and give away way much more food than if we are all given little amounts to go buy our
0: food. Okay. Okay. That's what I was trying to say earlier, but I think (laughs) I said it in a really weird way, so then I was confused. Okay. That makes sense. Got it. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Food is a public work. Um, It's something that I also know that we have the money for. I know that we have the land for. We are slowly building political will as well. Mm. So when I say we have the money, for example, Lawrence has a $436 million city budget, right? Mm-hmm. 1.2 million is about half a percent. So one half of 1%. Um, and that's kind of the year one budget, the year two budget. So year one would include some infrastructure purchasing, like building some stuff out. You need a place to mm-hmm. to package and and. and If you're you're doing uh, animal production, you need animal processing facilities. So let's build that out in year one. Year two, you're looking at about one quarter of 1% uh, of the city budget. So the money is definitely there. Um, I also say the land is there because uh, I'm actually about to release a report through a County Heritage Conservation Council grant that I did or started in 2021 that outlines the fact that we have over 200 acres of currently leased to, I would say, pretty much all monocropping uh, land that the city owns. So we, the city already owns the land base we would need to do the project.
0: Mm.
1: So the money is there. The mm-hmm. land is there. Uh, the Douglas County Food Policy Council also has a five-year food systems plan that food is a public work basically covers everything that they want to do or say that they want to do within that plan. So we have the money there. We have the land there. We have the food policy there from the council. Um, and now we just need the line item budget and to do it. And so that's 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 where we are right now uh, with food as a public work.
0: And then the name food is a public work. Well, it's like literally what it means.
1: Yeah. Food would be <laughs> a
0: public work like trash collection, like recycling, like, I don't know, road maintenance, like all of those things. Right. Like it would be kind yeah. of in the same realm as all of those things. I know that's like totally obvious to you, but it took me a minute. So that makes sense, like like putting it in, giving it the same prioritization as like other things that we just kind of take for granted because they're public works.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we pay for fire and rescue, right? We pay for a lot of it. We pay for noxious weed specialists. We pay for people who already do things with land. You know, we have we have parks uh, as a department, as a county, and a city. Mm-hmm. And uh, food as a public work would also be, as I mentioned, to like create jobs that are actually have a living wage for farmers too, yeah. and. My proposal, and this is going to seem high to a lot of people, is $60,000 a year at least. Mm. And I got that number because I took the average of 25 county employees that work with land. So, you know, land GIS and noxious weed specialists and parks directors and things like that. So 25 positions, averaged them out. That's actually $10,000 more than 60000 So it's about that average is about $72,000 for that those 25 employees who work with and around land. Mm. And so we already – have a precedent of paying people slightly more than what I'm even asking yeah. uh for. And so that salary precedent's also already there.
0: What do on average farmers make annually now?
1: Uh it really depends on your operation. So I mean if it yeah, I uh,
0: yeah, that's probably hard to I'm just thinking like if you were to put yeah. it all together and average it out like you did for I don't know. Don't know. I don't know. But less I, than I, sixty thousand you can assume, right?
1: When I when I tell other farmers that it would be 60,000, they're like sign me up. Really? Every <laughs> hands in the air like where do we start? Wow. Um and I I've had a lot of support from farmers in this. Um Cool. Yeah, so we're kind of one of the core groups that's like, yeah, why aren't we already doing this? Why aren't we already treating food as something everyone needs because it is? Like there's so right. many just obvious things that when we think about that as a model, it's just like why yeah, why don't we do it this yeah. way? Yeah.
0: So is this something that's being replicated elsewhere or like alongside it? Or is this kind of the novel idea and then the plan to replicate it out?
1: Yeah. I mean, I haven't found another example yet. Wow, that's um, kind
0: of like shocking.
1: Almost. Yeah, I know. it's it, The idea makes so much sense. And for there not to really be anyone subsidizing the production of food, it's, yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't found it yet. That doesn't mean that there isn't something out there um but i definitely haven't found it and everyone i've talked to which is a lot of different organizations a lot of different farmers food systems workers they're they they do not know examples of hmm. it either
0: and so this is something that you're trying to get done in Douglas County
1: yeah okay. i mean i if I, the the whole plan for it is up on my website if somewhere else can beat us to it please do
0: what's the can you say the url
1: yeah it's masefarm.org m a s e farm.org
0: Thank you for shortening the name on your website. That yeah. was such a kindness that you just did because I, <laughs> uh, yeah, Masa, I'm still trying. Masa Walquale. Well
1: yeah, Masa okay. Walquale. Well
0: Masa Walquale. Well mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, well, thank you for educating me on all of that because I feel like I am a third grader sometimes trying to understand some of this. But I don't think I'm alone in that, actually, which is... Comforting and sad at the same time.
1: <laughs> I guess there is one component of food as a public work we haven't touched on yet. Okay. Right? We talked about the history and legacy of racism and agriculture. Um, we talked about how there is only about like 1.8 percent of BIPOC who own farm farmland and farm. Um, and then we also talked about and touched on how most farm workers, specifically migrant farm workers, the people who are really harvesting. The scaled amounts of food that keep us alive are also BIPOC. Mm-hmm. This project would also be aimed to hire okay. predominantly, yeah. if not entirely, BIPOC producers to begin, you know, the baby steps of starting to offset the 200 plus year legacy of racism in agriculture. And so, you know, when you when you empower people with a living wage to do a job that they can otherwise not break into because of every single barrier we've talked about and more, um, then you're really starting to get at the structural racism that is within agriculture and starting to break that down. And then on top of that, um, you also have a core group of producers who can then produce culturally relevant foods for, uh, for BIPOC populations and for everyone to, to interact with, enjoy, eat, nourish themselves with.
0: Knowing that there is less than 2% of people who own land, who own farms, who are BIPOC, like, how are you going to find those people? Are, you, are they going to be like brand new people who are brand new to ag and get trained up? Or, or how, how do you see that going?
1: Yeah, I mean I think I mean we're we're out there. I know plenty of us who uh have tried and haven't made it or uh don't have the the ability to even start who have have done so much self-learning and education or who were brought up with growing food at home at least and you know not necessarily to scale but growing something. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who those people are and I'm going to say it like this, who those people are when this happens hmm. Right. Putting it out there. And then the I mean, the other component of it is, you know, as long as you have a core of people who are really knowledgeable about how to do it, it becomes a teaching space too. it becomes an mm-hmm. educational space, um, because another component of it is that there could potentially also be the opportunity for people to volunteer to learn, mm-hmm. right? And so you've got the paid workers, right, as, as, your, as your core, and then you start building a volunteer force of people who want to just help those people feed people, right? And so the trade-off there is they then also get to learn from professional producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've said this about really any kind of allevi- alleviation organization. If you don't have a plan to make yourself irrelevant – you're sustaining whatever problem you're saying you're mm-hmm. going to solve. And so food is a public work for me in the dream scenario ends in we no longer even need to pay people to do it because there's such an educated public about how to grow it who's engaged enough to then make food and farming essentially a recreational activity that we just partake in, like going to the gym or, or um, you know, just being outside generally, right? Um, and so food as a public work is also an educational framework where ideally, it becomes obsolete to pay people because everybody knows enough to grow food to scale to feed everybody. And it becomes a place of community hmm. and, and not even a workplace at a certain point. I mean, I don't know how far so- down the road that would be. But
0: so, like, put in other words, to kind of bring growing food back into our everyday life, yeah. which has been erased from our everyday life for all intents and purposes?
1: Yes. Cool. Yeah, absolutely.
0: What came to mind for me when you were talking about, when I asked you about um, finding BIPOC people to become producers or or existing BIPOC producers to become part of this program, do you see uh, the fact that... A lot of BIPOC people probably don't see themselves in agriculture because there's such a small percentage right now of the people who are in agriculture as a barrier of, you know what I mean? Like if you know, and this is talked about a lot in inclusion, um, in justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and access. Like if you don't see examples of people who look like you in a certain profession, then you don't see yourself in that profession and that could apply to anything. So do you see that as a barrier? And if so, how do you, how do we work around that? How do yeah. you change that?
1: I don't think I, I, don't think I do see it as a barrier. I mean, I think a lot of us know who those farm workers are. A lot of us know that this image of an elder white man in overalls on a tractor is a farce. I mean, (laughs) when you, when you, when you actually think about the things that land on our table, we're not eating raw corn or raw wheat or raw soy. Right. Okay. So it's, it's not the
0: issue of whether or not BIPOC are out there doing the work. They're just not owning the land. And so that's what you want to change is, is making it so that people of color, a lot of them who are already doing the work also own the land.
1: Yeah, I mean it's ultimately democratizing agriculture as opposed to reserving it for – reserving the decision-making level of agriculture to a specific class.
0: Yeah, a very specific.
1: And it doesn't have to be a land ownership thing either, right? I mean within this framework, it's it's still city or county-owned land. Ideally, the city or county would purchase land out of the private sphere, move it into the public sphere, and then start mm. on that organiz- – that's like a whole other level of like – really recreating public commons that we've lost the through, way that we think about land ownership. Yeah. 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 And so it, it, for me, it's not even a, an ownership thing. Like that's almost the last thing on my mind when it comes to, to farming. I don't even necessarily know if I want to own my own, my own land. What is my own land? Even if we're all, if there's so many people still hungry, like it should be something yeah. opened up for everyone, so that we don't have that anymore.
0: Well, and owning so. land and parsing land is is very much like a white it's colonial, colonial. Yeah. mindset. Whereas, yeah. I know you know and I know, but a lot of people don't that 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 thinking of land as everybody's or n- nobody's is an indigenous way of thinking about land, and and you can. Exp- I mean, take yeah. I mean, mic. thinking
1: of <laughs> thinking of land as it, it it owns itself, and we're lucky to have it, and we're even luckier if we have the opportunity to steward it. Right? I mean, the every element of the land is its own entity. It is it is its own like has its own personhood, in my opinion. Yeah. Um. And in my beliefs, so yeah, that that land owns itself as much as I own myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're like I said, we, we're lucky enough in the chances we get to steward it. And if we can steward it in a way that benefits everyone and doesn't even involve ownership, um, I think that's I think that's a beautiful. That is beautiful, beautiful way.
0: That would be amazing. <laughs> not to mention the fact that that would solve not not on its own, but it would be an important piece of solving a lot of other really big issues like climate change.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, food as a public work is also structured in a way to really be a, a learning center for sustainable agriculture as well. And you still have to grow things to scale, you still need to feed people, but there's plenty of organiz- like plenty of farms and and people who who do that and have done that much longer than we've done it in a destructive way. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, honestly, put agriculture is always going to be destructive. Right. There's there's not really a form of human agriculture since, you know, 200000 years ago that didn't do some form of altercation to the landscape Mm -hmm. that that changed it in a way that it wasn't before we were here. Yeah. But hey, we're here now. Yeah. (laughs) And so we since we're here and if we want to stay here, we have to make sure that we're doing it in ways that are that are sustainable, as sustainable as possible.
0: How do you define sustainable agriculture?
1: It's I mean, if you really want to drill down to like the the components of it, it's it's maintaining uh, a, a living soil, soil biology, um, preventing any of our inputs, any things that we add from leaching out into other uh, ecospheres. So keeping, you know, the land that we have, keeping those things there not leaching it into our waterways to harm all the life there and our drinking water not to mention that <laughs> um, or other ecosystems outside of the ones that we are disturbing for the purposes of agriculture and i mean we we are losing soil at an alarming rate to practices that that really promote erosion via the wind via water like tilling tillage yeah and there are even big or, big farm uh businesses that are doing till uh, no till on larger scales too and so there's there's I don't know. I I don't really like the idea of defining sustainable agriculture because I don't like I know a lot about it, but I don't want to say that I know everything about it by any means. And so it really depends landscape to landscape what sustainable agriculture is. Mm. But ultimately, it's preventing any of our inputs from leaching out into other ecospheres, preventing things like uh, erosion from basically getting rid of that topsoil that we depend on for yeah. life yeah
0: is organic farming always sustainable agriculture
1: uh mm, organic there's another there's <laughs> another tricky word right um probably not no no yeah. you you could theoretically you could have an organic like certified organic if we want to go to the full trademark certified organic farm that's not using sustainable practices they don't require you to do no-till to be organic certified uh, they only require you to use things that are derived from organic matter. So anything using things that are not synthesized in a lab is really the only requirement to say that you're organic. Um, and the other funny thing about that is I could actually call my produce organic if I sell less than $5,000 of that produce in a year and not have to get certified. And so you you see that markup of organic because they have to pay to get organically certified. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to, if I sold more than $5,000 worth of produce and wanted to put organic on a label, then I'd have to get a certification and you have to pay for that certification.
0: So it's a marketing thing.
1: It's a, really, by and large, a really big marketing thing. And it, I mean, if they are certified organic, it does mean that they're not using any kind of synthetic anything uh but it doesn't mean that they're not using you know organic forms of you know pesticide or nutrients and i'm not like dogging on any of those things by any means but it just that's all it means it means that they're not using something synthetic in their growing
0: so that we're not generalizing what what are some of your practices that you use on your farm to make it a sustainable model
1: yeah so i i do no-till so um I basically started out with a hay hayfield. Uh, and so, you know, I use a scythe, I use a broad fork, I use a hoe. So I have very minimal disturbance of, of the soil. I also don't use fossil fuel at all. Whoa. So, well, my car to get out there and back, but yeah. that's it. I'm also a no fossil fuel uh, cultivation farm. Um, and that, that's one that I was just at the beginning kind of just seeing if I could do. Yeah. I mean, fuel was also an input fuel also costs money, right? Those machines cost money. And I was like, well, I don't have that. First of all, (laughs) also fossil fuels, pretty bad thing as a lot of us know. Uh, it's a big, a big issue that we need to figure out. Um, and so I, yeah, I've been farming without any kind of fossil fuel machinery since the fall of 2018 and it's going really, really well. Um, and so, yeah, for me, my practices are, you know, no-till, no fossil fuel machinery. Um, I also use cover crops. So that's where, you know, if I have a, a harvest of, let's say, potatoes, I'll have barren soil. Barren soil means you're losing water, you're losing uh, soil to wind erosion. Um, and so I'll plant a cover crop like like clover or buckwheat or some you know, depending on what time of the year it is, I'll plant something so that the soils never bare, hmm. right? So that the... The living communities in the soil continue to live because those little microorganisms are literally deathly afraid of light, right? <laughs> and so if I till or if I leave them They're vulnerable like, to <laughs> UV, they fry, right? Which is <laughs> um, funny,
0: but it's not. <laughs> no, yeah,
1: it's it's funny to think about. But, yeah, it's their tiny little vampires in the soil that keeps us <laughs> alive, yeah. And if we expose them to light, then they are gone and your soil's not as healthy it doesn't hmm. move nutrients through as well it doesn't it doesn't ultimately feed the next crop as well either because those little organisms are breaking things down so that the plant can eat it.
0: Hmm. So does that like apply to like gardening too? Like should gardeners be using for example clover as a cover crop instead of having like bare soil exposed? I mean yeah. I know it's not important necessarily on like a big scale cuz the garden is small but for for the successive like your vegetables that you're growing in your garden? Is that like a beneficial thing to do?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, something easier to do for, especially on a smaller scale, is just to mulch. So get some okay. get some yeah. chopped straw and, and cover cover that little, you know, like a raised bed or something up. And yeah, so mulching, that's, I guess, yeah. is another, okay. uh, another thing that I do um, to prevent bare soil on smaller areas. Or, you know, if my potato hills, let's go back to potatoes again, have some bare soil kind of on the sides of the hills, then I can... You know, I can put down some straw or some alfalfa hay or something to keep that that soil covered. And that's going to keep your water in. So Mm -hmm. when you're actually putting water down, it stays under there. It's not running off. It's not getting solar evaporated. It's not getting wind evaporated. I see. I guess mulching would be another another Mm -hmm. sustainable practice. Within the farm itself, the seed stewardship and breeding program is really important to me.
0: Yeah, Let's talk about it.
1: So I kind of started this work in 2019. So really shortly after I started the farm, I wrote a grant for the USDA Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. They have a farmer rancher grant that you know farmers can can flex their their science uh, abilities and and show uh, show some sustainable research through their farming operations. So what I did was a a no till. Uh, comparison. So there's two no-till systems. There's our conventional no-till where you're just jab planting corn. This is the example on this one. And then uh, the instructions from a codex from the 1500s that was written by indigenous Mexican people. And so I did a comparative analysis of these two systems, sourced seeds from one of the many seed banks that we have around the country. And they actually let you search by region, like where the seeds actually came from. And so I found corn varieties that were from Guanajuato, uh, Which is where, where your family's from. Yeah, where my great-grandfather came from and, you know, grew that out in those two systems. End of the study showed that uh, the indigenous planting methods yielded about 6% more Duh. than the conventional no-till practices, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I absolutely love the way those instructions were written. Um, it's it's, it's like poetic, the way that the, the growing instructions uh, are written. And it's just so – it feels so much more connected than – in the V one stage of corn growth, you do you Scientific. put X amount of nitrogen down, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I have this really old corn that actually has a symbiotic relationship with a bacteria where it puts out this gel, attracts the bacteria, the bacteria eats nitri- nitrogen out of the atmosphere, processes it, and feed it, feeds it directly to the aerial roots, the roots above the soil, to the corn. What? Yes, there's a. There is a microbial relationship with corn and this bacteria that eats nitrogen out of the air, sci-fi freaky cool, and How then digests that it out? and then feeds it to the corn.
0: How did they figure that out?
1: There, Yeah, there was actually some more recent studies that have proven it according to Western science, right? And so, right, there you go, Western science, TM. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) comparing to the
0: measuring stick of Western science. Right,
1: yeah. So Western science has said, yes, this is true, and it can actually produce, that symbiotic relationship can produce up to 60 to 70% of the nitrogen that the corn needs altogether. Wow. And so I don't fertilize my corn at all because if I just have that relationship in in the corn that I'm growing— then i might realize a slightly smaller yield but i also don't put anything in
0: so you might end up selling less produce but you're yeah. also not putting that money into growing it
1: right yeah right so it can it can offset itself and so this this one's super important to me because that relationship and that genetic component of corn has been heavily bred out of corn mm. right and so the two things that corn has been bred for in the last 150 years yield per acre and uh, ability to withstand chemical warfare aka you know glyphosate and roundup right mm. and so when you focus on two specific traits of something there's a trade-off and so what what the trade-off has been has been the loss of that symbiotic relationship in mm. these quote unquote modern uh, varieties of uh, of corn and so this corn that I'm specifically researching and breeding out, I think I'm in my fourth year of of growing it out is around four to five thousand years old. Wow, and so it still has not within the entire population but within a, a vast amount of the population corn that displays this relationship and you 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 can see it uh, because the aerial roots or the roots that are above the soil corn will have some roots mm-hmm. above the soil, they form this little gel. And so when you see that gel there, you know that the bacterial community is in there eating nitrogen out of the air and feeding it to the corn.
0: So what we've done by breeding that out is basically created the same – a similar process that costs more money and does more damage.
1: Yeah, and nitrogen runoff is one of the most deadliest forms of of – fertilizer runoff that we have i mean if that gets into the water specifically really sadly babies are the ones who Mm. pay the heaviest price because uh like if you took water that was nitrogen contaminated um and heated it up it actually increases the level of nitrogen in it and can kill babies um like if you're making like a bottle for for your baby right and so yeah, nitrogen runoff is serious. a really serious bad thing. And so yeah, we've bred out this symbiotic relationship which has only required us to then use and lean on these often synthetically formed uh nitrogen inputs which cost money and cause uh environmental damage. <laughs> really bad trade-offs in my mind, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Um so that's one of the things I grow. <laughs>
0: You know, it's just interesting, like, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't list them all, but I've just heard so many examples of processes and systems that were used or developed by indigenous people that then white colonial settlers came in and didn't know, didn't understand, so wiped out and did it their own way. Robin Wall Kimmerer talks a lot about things like this in her book and, like, her talks and stuff that, like, in your example, when you compare the indigenous methods of doing things against the yardstick of Western science, they— measure up but they're but they're not (laughs) given credit even when they are measured against the yardstick of western science it's still like not given the credit that it's due and it's only ever really believed like once that happens, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, even though there's yep. been example and example and example of this happening, we still don't trust indigenous wisdom and indigenous ways of doing things.
1: Yeah. And that's that's gotten a lot of European people killed. So, like, let's go back to corn, right? When corn was first, I'm going to just go ahead and say stolen from. Yeah. <laughs> from this side of the world. And taken to Europe, they didn't listen to indigenous people about how to process it, right? And so, like, over a million people died of this disease called Pelegra I think is how you mm-hmm. say it. And essentially, if you don't properly process dried corn, so it's a, it's a process called nixtamalization, where you um, you take cal or calcium, I think it's calcium hydroxide, or lime or wood ash, and you boil the corn in that. That process will actually unlock the B vitamins and benefits of corn. Corn is good for you the right way and the right (laughs) kind. Corn is good for you. It's
0: not high fructose corn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so if you don't do this, corn gets into your body and it eats all of those nutrients from you. And it takes it away from you to the point where you can actually die.
0: And so that happened and over a
1: million people died Whoa. from not listening to just after, how to cook the food. After a
0: million people died, then were they like, Oh, maybe you're well, right.
1: <laughs> a little step between there, while a million people were dying, they called us like essentially demons and that our food was demonic.
0: It was and like killing witchcraft people. or something. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So corn was literally demonized. Oh my god. Um and we were we were labeled as as, you know, the S word and and demons and, you know, all those things. Um wow.
0: rather than just being like, Hey, maybe you like, were right.
1: Or, you know, just like looking even and seeing how we did it and then yeah. <laughs> and then mimicking matter like wow. Yeah. And so it's yeah, I mean it's good to listen to people who've been doing things for thousands of years, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, like hello. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I really love that corn. It's a white, purple, and purple and white speckled flower corn.
0: Oh, cool. So Uh, the kernels are those colors? Yeah.
1: Nice. Yeah, and it's it's called an elote conico. It's like the race of the corn because there's Mm -hmm. many different – there's so many different kinds of corn. There's like so many different kinds of corn. Um, And so that's one of the ones that I grow through the seed breeding program, kind of going back to that. Um, So I grow that corn. There's also a bean called a palacio bean. It's a really big – uh, like cream bean, so it's like cream colored and it's very creamy textured. Mm-hmm. Um, I also grow a kushaw squash, so it's like a gray and white striped squash. Um, a landrace pea, which landrace is like older than heirloom, um, and it has a really strong genetic diversity. I can dry farm it. like I don't have to water it ever as long as I time my planting with a rain. Um, and also peanuts. So a wow. peanut, here it's called a hirsuta peanut. Um. Also from Guanajuato. Also can dry farm it. Um. And you know when you get these things from the seed bank, you start out with like twenty-five seeds, ten mm-hmm. seeds, like really small amount. The corn's like a hundred because you need a pretty sizable plot to really get good pollination because it's wind pollinated. Right. Um. And so you know the first year it's just growing it out to get seed. So you're really just growing a it's called a seed crop. Um. And I'm in the seed crop stage of the beans and squash. Uh, the corn is in year four, the peanuts are in year two. I started off with 25 seeds with like a 30% germination rate, meaning only about 30% of them were going to grow in the first place. Ended up with 12 plants. That's almost 50%. Um, and those 12 plants turned into well over 600 seeds. Wow. And so now I've got about 250 plants out in the field. And so this year I'll actually be able to like cook with them and taste them and that's exciting and make some stuff. And they're not going to make the best peanut butter. But I'm not too sad about that because they have a lower oil content and a higher sugar content, so they're going to be less oily and sweeter, which I think sounds so roast pretty them? nice too. Yeah, probably yeah. roast them. Yeah, it's yeah. There's there there another one that people don't know. Do you know jicama? I've heard of you got it. Jicama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So jicama. It's a tropical uh, legume. So like in in that family, and uh, it grows here too. You can they get up to like softball size, wow. and fresh. Just you can't compare it to like a a waxed – because they have to wax them to keep them preserved, uh, to ship them all the way here. Uh, The the, the taste of a fresh one, it's like like a pear apple, but it grows under the ground as this giant softball-sized root. Wow. So good. Do you eat them raw? Oh, yeah. I eat them raw or one time I soaked them in coconut milk and then put cinnamon on them, and they kind of tasted like horchata.
0: Okay, you're yeah. gonna turn me on to a a new something that I have to grow my garden.
1: And it, it, it's a really fun one too. It, it produces a vine and has a really beautiful flower. Definitely do not eat the flower.
0: <laughs> it's a <laughs> it poisonous, <is> toxic.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Toxic but beautiful. Um, yeah, as they are heirloom varieties, they're going to continue to the seed will actually be true to type, so it'll actually be the same, the same thing the next year over year over year. Um, but it'll slowly become more adapted to the Kansas climate. Mm. And the climate here is actually pretty similar to the one in Guanajuato. It's just we get a little <laughs> bit more rain. And so they're already pretty adapted to here. But as they experience uh, Kansas drought and and flood and nice seasons like we had in 2020, yeah, uh, then they'll have that genetic memory um, and become more adapted over time to growing here.
0: I didn't know that's how that worked. That's pretty sweet.
1: Very long process, but... Yeah, the wow. longer you grow it in a place, if it's from somewhere else, the more adapted it'll it'll be. I mean, plants have been here for way longer than we have. Yeah, they yeah they know what's up.
0: Do you bring hickam up to market?
1: I don't actually go to market now, so you don't anymore. Okay, yeah, I sell pretty much all wholesale. Um, once the state of Kansas finally gets rid of the sales tax on food, I might consider going back to direct consumer markets. Um, so you know, everyone who goes to their farmers market. Uh, think about this so that farmer who has that price tag there and hopefully they've worked in this to their price tag they're going home and they're paying 10 percent of what you gave them just to operate so
0: how is that even possible for them to like
1: it kills your already slim margins
0: i feel like you have to really love and i'm not saying that you don't because you don't do it but i'm just saying in general like you have to really love farming to continue to do that. I mean, because what your take home is probably so
1: it's very already very, very slim margins. I mean, most most farmers will have a wholesale market in addition to their direct to consumer market. It's kind of a necessity. And most farms will also have some form of value added so, like, drying teas and packaging them or mm-hmm, making yeah. herb salts or, like... But they can make some more money. Right. Or, like, your bees uh, have wax, so you make some kind of, like, salves or, you yeah. know, so you... Yeah. So you can actually afford to do the thing that you really love to do, which is the vegetables and fruit part On yeah. for a lot of farmers I know. Um, and so, yeah, so direct-to-consumer markets are hard because we... I mean, we have to pay the, that near 10% tax on whatever we make from that market, whereas wholesale market, we don't have to pay... Any taxes at all.
0: Let's go ahead and do our fun Q&A. Yeah. Um, some of these are questions that I've asked everybody. So it's fun to hear uh, everyone's responses to the yeah. same questions. Um, so first one being, what's what's your favorite thing about yourself?
1: I think my favorite thing about myself is that I, and this is going to sound super cynical, but I don't mean it this way. Uh, I don't rely on hope as a construct. Okay. I, I, don't, like, I don't like the construct of hope. Okay. Uh, You can have hope if you also are making a plan. Yeah. But raw hope, as is often preached in so many different spaces, to me just doesn't – it doesn't stick.
0: So hope without work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of like toxic positivity Mm. thing is real alive out there. And so I can feel and be hopeful, but I definitely don't like relying on it as, as a construct. I would rather take that time hoping and plan. I don't know. Right. Again, that's gonna make it sound super, super cynical. But like, I don't know. That's just.
0: It makes me think of like people who say, "Oh, I'll just pray about it." Yeah. Without taking any action, it's like, oh, dang. Yeah. (laughs) Um, what's something that you appreciate in other people?
1: I appreciate when other people have patience for themselves, for each other, for the things and work that they're doing. Uh, Patience is something I think everybody could. could could get a little more work in on so when i you know find others who are patient um that's who i usually get along with the most and as a farmer you have to have a superior form of patience
0: yeah
1: Yeah. like a really really structured form of patience
0: i find that hard to come by sometimes yeah working on it (laughs) uh what's a daily habit that you think is important
1: break away from your typical daily habits at least once a day OK. So and it's, like, it's good to have structure, but it's also not great to be overly structured. Mm-hmm. And so we're not robots. Yeah, we're not. We're not robots yet. No. Just <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, um, and too so soon,
0: too soon. Yeah. And so,
1: yeah. I think a da- daily habit would be uh, trying to find ways and it definitely doesn't happen every day, but trying to find ways to break away from the way that I'm doing things or at least think about a way to do the things that I am doing differently.
0: Yeah. For me. What that means is like finding ways to integrate play into your day. Mm. There's kind of a – that well, so there's like research that that play or however you want to define it, you know, basically not work, does really like amazing things for our brain, our brains. And – I totally believe that because when I, you know, even today, for example, like this morning I was working all morning and then I was like, I'm just going to go wander around outside aimlessly. Like I'm not, and that was play to me because it was, there was no objective in mind. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't like trying to get anything done and it just, it just like does something to your brain, like shifts that, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Look it up. Look up what play does to your brain. It's good for your brain. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that sounds great. That's yeah, kind of yeah. how I take that. Uh, what do you want people to know about Masa Wal Kuala Farms? Quali.
1: That I want to do it in a way that ultimately provides everyone with all the awesome things I get to experience when I'm doing it. I, I want everybody to have the kind of access that I have if they want it, if they want to take on that role as a land steward.
0: To the freshest, fresh food that's Right there, ripe for the picking.
1: Yeah, the the fresh food, the the time outside in the fresh air, the contact with the soil—that's been proven to be literally an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, all of it.
0: What are those? Co- is it sides or something? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that's it. There's this book um, called Forest Bathing by Sh... Well, Shinrin Yoku is Forest Bathing in Japanese, and I can't remember the author's name, but. <laughs> I know that phytoncides are something – I can't remember if it's released from the soil. I think it is. And it's what we breathe in, and it's it's literally like a antidepressant. But I feel like yeah. there's something else in the soil that when you make contact with it, it has like that effect on your body. What is a favorite book of yours?
1: Okay, so this is going to sound super nerdy, and I love it. Um, it is a essentially a compilation of – every translation of this codex that i know of from the 1500s and so what yeah <laughs> I, I know explained. right okay <laughs> so there's this codex called the codex barberini which is a uh, it's called a quote unquote aztec herbalist or as i would say a mexica herbalist uh book from the 1500s that was written and illustrated by indigenous mexican people That's rare. Most of the time those books are through a Spanish lens and they've got some really choice wording. Um, And so this one's actually written by indigenous people and illustrated by indigenous people. And it was translated a whole bunch of times by mm -hmm. a bunch of different scholars throughout decades of, uh, you know, of of work. And each one is a little bit different, right? Because translation itself is an art. Um, and so you get different interpretations, you get different plant, like, oh, this is this Latin-named plant, or this, you know, still different translations will will disagree with each other. Mm. And so I uh, learned about a book that essentially takes all of those translations and then cross-references them all, breaks them all down, boils them all down, and kind of creates a, this is probably the most accurate version based oh, on all of these other versions. Cool. Yeah.
0: So, what can you tell me again what it's called?
1: The book is called Flora, the Aztec Herbal. Cool. Pretty short name. Um, but yeah, it is a like 250 some page book um, that, that really takes all these different translations and cross references them and then kind of is the current um, you know, representation of what, what, what that actually was.
0: So, is it like a narrative form or is it more like educational?
1: It's more educational. Yeah, it's more, yeah, more resource oriented.
0: How can people engage with you?
1: Yeah, I think I'm most active on my Instagram page. Uh, I will not answer a Facebook message because I've like (laughs) been deleted off Facebook. Well, not like I haven't deleted everything off of there or whatever, but like I haven't been on there in like forever. Like, There's no way I could be reached via that. So yeah, Instagram. So I, I try to post stories every once in a while or updates about how seed breeding programs going, things like that. Um, that's probably the best way. Um, and then if people want to get engaged on food as a public work, there is a letter writing campaign happening right now um, where you can actually you know, re- you can read up about food as a public work. you can listen to multiple podcasts, read articles about you know, that I've written or that people have written with me um, about food as a public work, and then write a letter of support for uh, for food as a public work for actually implementing it. Um, and ultimately I want to, you know, get about 75 to a hundred letters and then have us all show up and read those letters to city commission, county commission, um, to show them that we really are in support of this. Um, and I don't have a whole lot of letters yet. It's been really super slow, uh, pace to do it. But one of the most beautiful letters I had was actually written by a family. So they kind of, they sat down talked about, you know, food and hunger and, and talked about the project and wrote yeah wrote a letter as a family so you can you can write one with a friend you can write one with family if you have a nonprofit organization or some kind of organization and you want to talk about it as a big group and write a letter as you know a hundred people organization saying that they want to see this happen you can do that so there's a lot of different creative ways to do it um and you can do that through the website and the former english teacher and me uh created a writing workshop on the website so if you're unsure about how to write a letter in that kind of format there's in talking your spare time and you there's... created that yeah 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 <laughs> all I did, your
0: spare time i did an have...
1: event with lawrence public library uh Whoa. and created a little a little letter writing campaign workbook which will also teach you how to cool. civically engage yourself in other ways too so oh, that's it's an amazing just, resource. yeah it's just, not just that but it's yeah. also like if you want to write some someone who's supposed to represent you this is a way to do it
0: uh are like can anybody write a letter or are you looking for anyone in particular like any i don't know professions or anything like that
1: i think i think as many different walks of life we have writing these letters the stronger it is um can ideally they be
0: from outside of douglas county
1: they can be but uh i'm really trying to focus on people in douglas county since we're trying to approach city and or county governments to do this they would want to hear from direct stakeholders yeah Um, and so, you know, maybe indicate if you're not from Douglas County, um, in that letter, like where you're from, but that you see this program is something you'd like to see where you're at. That's also powerful too, I think.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for your time. I know you are a happily, but happily (laughs) busy, but busy nonetheless person. Um, so thank you for taking the time to talk with me and, and educate me on a lot of things. Um, and hopefully, educate folks who are listening to this about food systems and the history of food in this country and 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 the efforts that you've got going on which are all super important and necessary and maybe somebody outside of our sphere will hear this and like be inspired to start something similar in their own county or or city so um so just thank you for sharing what you know and what you're doing yeah thank you for having me Thanks for listening to the Makers, Dreamers, Doers podcast with me, Morgan Barrett. Please remember to follow, review, and share this podcast with anyone who you think would enjoy it. Your support helps more people find the podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at morganbarrett__ and check out my website for more information at morganbarrett.co.